And there ends the reading, John 8, verses 21 through 47. Today's message, who's your daddy? Who is your father? Some years ago in the city of Los Angeles, a man was walking down the street with a sign on his shoulders, one of those sandwich board signs, you know. And the front of the sign said, I am a slave to Christ. The back of the sign asked the question, whose slave are you? Now, that man realized an important truth about human life. He realized that, and I'll do air quotes here, freedom, as most people understand that, is not always what they think it is. And that slavery is a reality in life that many of us don't care to admit. And I don't mean sex slavery or you know, enslaving people to go do work. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. According to the divine word of God, we are all slaves to one or the other of two masters. You can say either to sin or to righteousness, or you could say you're either a slave to the devil or a slave to God Almighty. By our very natures, we are made to serve and, frankly, to be controlled by forces beyond our power. We may think we're in charge of everything in our lives, but we're not. And the idea of freedom is one of three things that are present here in this long passage of John chapter 8. And we see that Jesus here is continuing his debate with those Pharisees, these leaders of the Jews, as they continue their attempts to entrap him and find some cause and opportunity to have him arrested and executed. So this is more than just, you know... uh, the seminary student lounge theology debate. This is life and death. As I have studied this passage, I believe it divides into three points that I would like to share with you here today. First of all, in the verses 21 to 29 section, Jesus refers to his departure from this world and his judgment upon his enemies. Jesus informs his enemies here that he will soon depart this earthly plane to return to heavenly glory. And that departure, which we know to be his resurrection and ascension, means two things in particular. It means that the work that he came to do in this world will be finished, and all of those for whom God elected, all those for whom he died, are saved and redeemed forever. In other words, God is making good on his promises in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman, from her seed, would come a deliverer, a redeemer. And he will deliver his people from their sins. But, you know, we've learned enough about study of Scripture that there's two sides of the coin here. We see this beginning right there in Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. When God blesses his people... The reverse side, the opposite end of that, means that his wrath will come upon his and their enemies. Notice Jesus' words here to his enemies. You will die in your sins, and where I go, you cannot come. What an awful thing to hear from the lips of the divine Son of God. Sadly, those men did not even realize the terrible judgment That was soon to come upon them. Listen to that again. Listen carefully to what I just said. Those men, these Pharisees, these leaders of the Jews, they did not realize 
the terrible judgment that was soon to come upon them. I'm not saying when they died, although that would be a part of it. I mean in their lifetimes, the judgment of Christ was coming upon them. And in verse 24, the Lord spells it out very clearly as to that judgment and why it was coming upon them. He says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Friends, it's simply not enough that each of us have our own ideas about Christ, about who he is and what he did and what we think about it. If we claim to be Christians, we must believe he is who he says that he is. And that means, in fact, we must believe what all of Holy Scripture says about who he is. And one reason for that is that he is the author of all of Scripture. Look again at verse 28. He tells them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and I do, can do nothing of myself. Now, you know, some people assume that means when Jesus is lifted up, that is when he's hoisted on the cross of Calvary and lifted up to die there... Then the Jews will know who he is and then repent and be saved. But let me tell you, that is not at all what that means. The knowledge they would come to on that day would not be a saving knowledge of Christ. No, it would be the realization that this one whom they despised was nonetheless the very one who he claimed to be. And the reality of that truth would crush them and grind them to powder during their very lifetimes. There, I said it again, and it would condemn them for all eternity. Let me spell it out for you if you haven't figured it out yet. This is a follow-up to what Jesus told them in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. This is the soon coming judgment against Israel and the Jews and Jerusalem that culminated in the absolute destruction of the temple and the whole nation of Israel in A.D. 70. Now that is not a very pretty picture, is it? It's not a, a nice picture that's being painted here. And it's not meant to be. Because sin and the consequences of sin are not pretty things. And the more grievous and heinous the sin the uglier the consequences. Our shorter catechism teaches us that some sins in themselves are more heinous in the sight of God than others. The philosopher Thomas Hobbes got it just about right when he wrote, Hell is truth seen too late. So here he first of all talks about his soon departure from this world, but then he also talks about the soon coming judgment upon the Jews. But then secondly, we see here that freedom means being a slave to the right master. We, we said that at the very beginning. In verse 30, we read that many of the Jews believed in Jesus as they heard him teach and have this dispute with the Pharisees. Possibly even some of the Pharisees themselves were beginning to believe in him. But notice what Jesus tells them in verse 31. If you make my word your home, you will indeed be my disciples. If you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples. If you continue to obey my teaching, then you're my disciples. All of those are valid translations of the Greek text there in verse 31. Jesus knows quite well that in his day, and I'll say also in our day, there are those false believers, those counterfeit fake followers who say one thing, but they do another when it comes to truly living for Jesus. And we see once more, 
following Jesus, obeying his word, is a vital part of what it means to really believe in him. And here the Lord makes one of his memorable and oft-quoted statements, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, or set you free. A lot of people quote that verse out of context, and even people who read it in context, they're they're not quite sure what he means. What truth is it that, that will make us free? Well, it's the truth of who Christ is, the truth of what God requires of us, the truth of what Christ came into this world to accomplish. That is the truth referred to here. Not a vague, generic sense of truth, but the truth of God as revealed in his word. And from what will that truth set us free? Are you ready for this? Are, are you sitting down? Well, of course you are. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. It is only going to set us free from one master to become enslaved to another. Before we knew that truth, we were slaves to sin and a false knowledge of God and the world he created. And once we began to be gripped by the truth, we become a slave to Christ and his righteousness. In other words, according to the divine law word of God, we are free not when we can do what we want to do. And you know, that's the standard definition in our culture, isn't it? I'm free because I can do, I can finally do what I want to do. But according to God's law, we are not free when we can do what we want to do, but when we want to do and can do what God says we should do. And I can think of no better example of this than the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was like those Pharisees initially. He was a slave to the Jewish traditions, the Talmudic traditions. He prided himself on his supposed blue blood ancestry. He was a slave to that way of thinking. But when he encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus, he came to understand that he was a slave, only now he served the right master. Listen to what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.22. He says, And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. And then in Philippians 1.1, he refers to himself and Timothy as bondservants or slaves of Christ Jesus. But the Lord makes a distinction here between being a slave to sin and being a slave to him. See, the former is very much like being a slave in that you, you never gain any real advantage. No matter how high you might ride the wave of sin and unrighteousness, sooner or later, it will catch up with you. But you see, in the Lord's household, being bound to him while being likened to slavery is really more like being an adopted child. A slave will be sooner or later turned out of the master's house. But a child will live in the house forever, metaphorically speaking. They may leave the home, but they're forever a part of the family. And so it is with all who are in union with Christ. We are safe with him forever, both in this world and in the world to come. Notice, too, that we see a major change here in those Jews who claim to believe in Jesus. Once they came to understand that believing in him meant obeying his word and giving up their traditions and their rules, they were none too happy about that. And they quickly changed their minds. They were offended that Jesus even suggested that they would be slaves to anybody. We are Abraham's descendants, they proudly proclaim. They're not in bondage to the 
idol-worshiping pagan ways of the heathen, Romans, and Greeks. And here we can see one of the most corrupting influences in religion. The, the idea, and it, it really originates here with them. There were other ancient peoples guilty of it, but the Jews really perfected it in, in this Talmudic tradition that the, their ethnic background somehow places somebody better standing with God than anybody else. There are different versions of it. All right, thirdly, we learn here that children of God are the contrast between the children of God to the children of the devil. Or I could say euphemistically, the contrast between having the Lord God as your daddy and the devil as your daddy. Being a member of God's family is not a matter of blood. It is a matter of covenant. It is a matter of spiritual bond, not of blood or racial bond. And we're actually alerted to that truth at the very beginning of John's gospel. It literally screams off the pages at us. In John 1, 11 to 13, I'm reading this from the New King James Version. John says, he came to his own. Now, the, the own to which he came are the Jews, the people of Israel. And his own people did not receive him, but as many as received him. So right there, we've got a cleavage, a separation. It, it does no longer the distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's the distinction between those people who reject him and those who receive him, no matter what their bloodline. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. To those who believe in his name. There's another instance of it not being a matter of racial bond. Who were born, it even spells it out in verse 13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so our standing in Christ, our membership in God's household is not based on blood, it is based on covenant. And those Jews of all people, they should have realized that. But they with great conceit pat themselves on the back because they are Abraham's descendants. And thus they assume that by that they are right with God. But what they had forgotten or maybe never cared about was that Abraham himself was a man of pagan blood. And the only reason that he had a relationship to Jehovah God was that the Lord in his sovereign mercy chose to make a covenant with him. Now, we heard about that in Genesis 17 in our Older Testament reading. It, and you could go back earlier to Genesis 12 and hear the same story. So the defining characteristic of being a true descendant of Abraham means preserving the terms of that covenant God Almighty made with him. Those Pharisees hate the Son of God, and they think that is in line with how Abraham would have reacted if he himself had been standing there with them. But Jesus points out that no true descendant of Abraham would reject the Son of God. Unless, of course, they're relying on claiming to be a blood descendant of Abraham. They might well. But that's not the main point of being a descendant of Abraham. It's a covenantal, spiritual descent. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that as a matter of fact, Abraham himself accepted Christ for who he is. Now, uh, <clears throat> You may hear that and say, well, wait a minute. Are you kidding me? Where and anywhere in the Bible does it say that Abraham accepted Christ? I mean, he lived a thousand years earlier. Well, if you'll take the time to read Romans chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11, you will see there that Abraham and all of the Older Testament saints were saved by faith. They were reckoned righteous in Christ by faith. Faith and trust in the promise of God to bring his son into the world. 
Now, last week, I said that one of the ways these Pharisees attempted to discredit the ministry of Jesus was by spreading a rumor that he was the illegitimate son of Mary, and depending on the version of the story, uh, some unknown man, or some cases, a, a Roman centurion. Either way, a pagan. Now, in that section last week at verse 19, they posed that snarky question to him, and where is your father? That was meant to be an insult, as I said at the time. Here we see an even more brazen form of that insult. Look again at verse 41. Jesus says to them, you are doing your father's work. You're doing what your father does. And they immediately responded, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Our ancestry, in other words, our ancestry is not in question. The only father we have is Almighty God. And so they, they double down on the lie that they've spread, that Jesus was born of an adulterous affair between his earthly mother and some pagan. So they imply here, unlike you, Jesus, we are not born of fornication. We are not like children who never know who our daddy is. And then the Lord says, as plainly and obviously as it can be said, He tells them that as a matter of fact, not only are they not true children of Abraham because they reject him as the Lord's Messiah, not only are they not only not true children of God, they are in fact the children of the devil. The devil is their daddy. Jesus did not mean that those men were literally the blood descendants of the devil, obviously, he's speaking covenantally. In terms of who they were in covenant with, it was Satan and not God. And by contrast, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were in covenant with the true God, and therefore they may rightly call him their father. You know, for some here, when they read this, the words of Jesus seem particularly harsh. You know, we live in the... uh, so-called woke, politically correct age. And it's interesting to contemplate that Jesus, in saying this to the Jews, you are of your father, your father is the devil, he would be accused of being an anti-Semite, wouldn't he? Well, as a matter of fact, this goes way back. Um, Different Jewish organizations have attempted to actually restrict the public reading of the Gospel of John in some cases because they don't like what Jesus says here. But the fact is, even if we discount or lay aside the so-called woke, politically correct aspect of this, it sounds very harsh to say to anybody, you know, you're, you're a child of the devil. But you see, a particularly ugly sin calls forth here from the Lord a harsh denunciation. And if we are familiar with God's plan in history, that should come as no surprise. It should be no surprise at all. That there are people in the world who are, whether they will acknowledge it or not, enslaved to the devil. While others are bondservants of Christ Jesus our Lord. We talked last time about, or asked the question, on which side of the line are you? Am I? The world is divided between those who are members of God's household and those who are not. And that should be no surprise to anyone since God himself decreed at the beginning of creation that it would be so. The Lord God declared to the serpent, that is Satan, um, you will are cursed above all livestock. This is Genesis 3, 14. Uh, and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. 
And then he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put strife, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, meaning ultimately Christ Jesus. And he, the Lord, will crush your head, Satan. You will only be able to bruise his heel. As we think about this, it may be worth asking, where do we fit in to this picture? In other words, who is our daddy, right? I mean, after all, if it's indeed true that there are only two types of people in the world, and you or I are going to be one in one of those two groups, aren't we? And the Lord knows that that is a concern that at least some people have. And it's for that reason that he tells us how we can know whether or not God is our Father. Look again at verse 47, John 8, 47. He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you do not, you are not of God. That's how it reads in the New King James Version. But then in verse 47, our same verse in the New Century Version, the person who belongs to God accepts what God says. But you don't accept what God says because you don't belong to God. I I like that a little bit better because it brings out the idea that the hearing of the word, as Jesus himself says in a few other places, involves automatically the doing, the obeying of the word. So there's the ultimate paternity test, if you will. You don't need to send your DNA, DNA off somewhere to find out who your father is. There's the test right there. Do you hear God's word? Do you accept it? Do you obey it? Is the way of life given to us in God's word and Holy Scripture? Is that your way of life? Is it mine? Is it ours? Let us pray.